Right, hey, uh, grab your Bibles with me this morning and uh, turn to the book of Hebrews is where, uh, where we're going to be camping out this morning. Uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 10 is where we will spend all of our time uh, for our sermon this morning. Uh, and so as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting around about verse 19 is the section that we're going to be in this morning. Uh, welcome to Grace Bible Church. We're going to continue uh, with our uh, series this morning called Counterfeit Gospels. And we find ourselves in part six of Counterfeit Gospels. And so as you're uh, finding your place in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 10, I just want to give you a quick review before we pray and then jump in uh, to our sermon this morning. By way of quick, quick review, um, our sermon series is called Counterfeit Gospels, and we've been exploring the idea uh, that there have been and that there continue to be uh, false gospels, that is, false or counterfeit good news to what the true gospel is, the true good news uh, of Christianity. And so in part one of Counterfeit Gospels, we talked about the reality of counterfeits, and we saw from Galatians chapter one that Paul uh, dealt with rather severe severely uh, these counterfeit gospels that were influencing the churches there in Galatia and that how that's true for us today. Counterfeits existed back then and counterfeits continue to exist today. In uh, part two, uh, we saw the wreckage of counterfeits. That is, what damage do counterfeit gospels, when believed and lived out in the church, have on a, on a group of Christians on the church? And we basically saw that there were uh, twofold wreckage. Number one, there's a lack of gospel clarity. That is, we are confused over what the gospel is and and secondly, there's a lack of gospel confidence. If we don't know what the real gospel is, then we uh, try and pl- place our faith in all sorts of other things rather than the good news of Jesus Christ to bring salvation and life transformation. And so we saw the wreckage uh, of counterfeits as well. And then in Counterfeit Gospels Part 3, what we saw is that we defined the gospel. And we basically said that uh, there are three a- elements or aspects to the gospel. Number one, the life of Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life in obedience in our place, although we could never do so. He died a, a substitutionary death. That is, he died on the cross in our place, bearing the wrath of a holy God in our place for our sins. And then thirdly, he was resurrected from the dead, confirming both his life in our place and his death in our place. And he rose from the dead. And that is essentially the three elements of the gospel. And then uh, for the past couple weeks, and what we'll continue to do for the rest of our time in this series, is then talk about some different counterfeits uh, that me and myself and others in the, in the Christian culture see as possible counterfeit gospels. And so we have seen a couple possible counterfeits. First of all, we saw in part four that would be uh, what I call the I gospel. And the I gospel basically says that uh, we use Jesus Christ for our, our, our own ends, for our own happiness, and that God, Jesus, essentially exists for us to make our life uh, happy and easy. That's the I gospel. Secondly, last Sunday, we saw uh, what I called uh, the morality gospel. And that's essentially the gospel that says God will be pleased with us. God will accept us both into heaven and into fellowship with him if we simply just be good and keep the rules. And so that's where we've been. And in part six this morning, we find our third counterfeit gospel that I've entitled the churchless gospel, the churchless gospel. And so let's pray one more time and then we'll dive in. Father, we do ask again for your presence uh, to be among us. Holy Spirit, we greatly desire that you would come and illuminate our hearts and our minds to this holy word uh, that you've given to us. I pray, uh, Spirit, that you would move through me in a way that's meaningful and significant and powerful. I pray that you would help me to speak your word accurately and truthfully. I pray for those who will be hearing uh, these words and from your holy word, uh, we ask that they would have soft hearts, uh, that they would be able to hear a place 
places of, of change, that uh, you would convict them if they need convicting, that you would encourage them if they need encouraging, that you would admonish them, that you would uh, reveal yourself to them. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just have freedom in this place and that we would be receptive, uh, receptive to you. And so come and enable me and help those who hear, help us all to be changed uh, by your word. And we ask it in the great name of our God and our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Uh, so I want to begin this morning in part six of the Churchless Gospel with a story that I ran across. And the story is of a man uh, in a small community, very much like ours, and he was a well-known, uh, a well-known, let's just say, church hater. He didn't like church. He refused to go to church staunchly against anything religious, but particularly against the Christian church. And so a new minister moved into town, into one of the churches, and uh, just unbeknowing to him, decided just to make the rounds and visit some people, and he knocked on the door of this, uh, of this man who is very um, opposed to church. And so they got into a conversation, and it, it became really clear very quickly that this man did not ever want to go to church. And so the pastor asked him, hey, why, you know, why is it that you don't go to church? What's, what's the purpose of that? And the man essentially said, I don't go to church because every time I go to church, they throw something at me. And, and the pastor was a, a bit puzzled, and he said, what do you mean they throw something at you? And so the man said, well, when I was a baby, my parents took me to church, and the pastor threw water on me. And then when I got married, I had my wedding ceremony, and they threw rice at me. And the pastor uh, quickly responded with this. And if you don't start going to church soon, the next time you do, I'm afraid they'll be throwing dirt on top of you (laughs) at his funeral. In case you didn't get the joke. This morning, we're going to be talking about a gospel that I call the churchless gospel. And essentially, uh, the question that we're going to be asking is, what is the relationship between the true gospel, the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we receive by repenting and, and, and by faith? What does that have to do with the church? What does that have to do with the local church? Is, are, are the two tied in any way? Or can you have a Christian, can you be a Christian uh, without properly being related to the local church. That's really uh, the counterfeit gospel that we will be talking about this morning. The churchless gospel, um, as I define it, is, is simply this. The churchless, the churchless gospel says that participating in a local church is not a necessary part of being a Christian. That is the churchless gospel. It's not a necessary part of being a Christian. And so what we've seen, as we have for the past couple of weeks, is we've taken a look at the first century uh, uh, gospel or counterfeit gospel. And so first, we'll take a look at the first century churchless gospel. Second, we'll take a look at the 21st century churchless gospel. And then third, we'll wrap up with how we can combat that. And so let's dive into our text. Uh, point number one, if you'd like to keep score, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, for the first century churchless gospel, um, this passage, as I read it, is both encouraging to me and it's discouraging. It's in- encouraging to me because I read that when we read the scriptures, sometimes I think we can come and we can look at the, at the first century church and we just think of it as perfect, ideal, no mistakes, no errors, no issues, no problem, no sin, no heresy, just this ideal thing. But when we read through the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, what we find out is that it was less than ideal, it was less than perfect, and it had in some of the very same issues and struggles that we, even as the 21st century church, still struggle with. And what we find in Hebrews chapter 10 is that early Christians, even in the first century, struggled they struggled with this churchless gospel. 
We're going to see that in just a minute. But before we read the text, let me give you a bit of a background to the book of Hebrews. Uh, really quickly, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians, okay? And so these were believers, just like me and you, but they were Jewish ethnically. And essentially, the, the writer of Hebrews writes to this group, this, this local church, and they're Jewish Christians, and they're facing persecution, and they're facing tremendous pressure, most likely from their fellow Jews who aren't Christian, to turn away, to forsake Jesus Christ as the Messiah, to turn back from Christianity to Judaism, as it were. And so the, the whole point of the, of the book of Hebrews is the author of Hebrews is saying, don't do it. <laughs> Keep the faith. Don't give up on Jesus Christ. The new covenant and faith in Jesus Christ is so much better than anything that the law or Judaism had to offer. And so that's the overall context. And what we find out when you read the book of Hebrews is it's more like a sermon than a letter. And so if you read it all the way through, it's like this guy is preaching his heart out for 12 some odd chapters, and he's just preaching, and he's preaching, and and, and it's meant to be a sermon. And so like typical sermons you have, he explains this is what God's word is, and then he says this is what it means for you. And so in this section that we're looking at, basically this is one of the application sections. The author now is turning from the theology that he's been talking about, and he says, this is why it matters. This is what I want you to do, and so it's a word of exhortation, and in this particular section, what we find out is he's going to give three commands, or three admonitions, if you will, and you'll see them as we read through it, because they're marked by the words, let us. He will say, let us draw near to God. Let us hold on to our uh, faith uh, and our hope. Let us encourage one another. And so as we read through the text, you'll find these three commands. And so essentially what he's saying is, number one, he says, let us draw near to God. And so he's saying, listen, you have now access to a relationship with the God who was in the Holy of Holies. The veil has been torn. You have this incredible opportunity to know God personally. So draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. And then his second, his second exhortation is, hey, hold on to your profession of faith. Not only should we draw near to God, but don't give up. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Keep the hope that you have in your Christian faith. And then the third exhortation, which is where we will focus the third exhortation, uh, exhortation he, basically, he basically says, let us encourage each other. Hey, we need to encourage each other. And so, bear with me here. Let's put these three points together. What's the main point of this section? He says, draw near to God. Don't give up, don't give up Christianity. Encourage one another. The point that I want you to see is that the author of Hebrews says, for those of us who are Christians way back then, and for those of us who are Christians now, if we want to draw near to God and to know God like we can, and if we want to keep ourselves from the danger of leaving the faith, of disbelieving God, of turning our backs on Christianity, then we need each other. That's the point. He says Christianity is not an individualistic uh, religion, but it's a communal religion in the sense that faith is a community effort. And so that's what he says in, in, in these passages. So now, now that you have this overview, let's read through the section as a whole, starting in verse 19, and then we'll read through verse 25. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's the first one, let us 
draw near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Second, let us, let us hold unswervingly. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who is promised is faithful. And here comes the third. And let us consider Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And this is indeed God's holy word. What I want us to focus on is starting around about in verse 24. Notice the third exhortation. Let's look at it again. Let us consider how we should spur one another on toward love, towards love and good deeds. So he gives this command, right? This is what I want you to do. It's a communal event. We need to be rubbing shoulders with one another, spurring each other. I mean, you're familiar with the image of a spur, or I am, because I'm from Texas, right? We wear spurs all the time in Texas. In fact, I have mine in my closet. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But in Texas, you know what a spur is. You spur the horse on. You kind of give it a little kick because you want it to go faster. You want it to keep going. You give it a little nudge. And and this is kind of the idea that he, he, he gives here. We need to spur one another on. We need to give each other little nudges towards love and towards faithful obedience. And so then the question becomes, how do we do that? I mean, how do we do that? How do we, as he says, spur one another on towards love and good deeds? Well, he's going to give us a couple ways. There are a couple ways that we can do this. One is negative and one is positive. One is something that we should avoid doing and one is something that we should do. Notice the negative one because that's where we see this churchless gospel come about. And so he says, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And this is what you should avoid. Avoid doing this, and you will spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Look again at verse 25. Not giving up, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. So there's the negative. This is what you should avoid. If you really want to spur each other on, then keep coming to church. That's what he says. If you really want to obey this command, then keep coming to church and don't give up meeting together. Positively, he says, he continues to say, uh, to say but, so the positive side of that is, but encourage one another even, even more so as you see the day of Jesus Christ's return coming. And so let's just focus in a little bit. And what I want us to see is three characteristics of the churchless gospel. We've seen the overarching context and everything the author is trying to get across here. Let me point out three characteristics that I see from the text of this churchless gospel that existed even been 2,000 plus years ago. Number one, the first characteristic of the churchless gospel is that you stop participating in the regular gatherings of the church. Notice again what it says in verse 25, not giving up, what does it say, church? Not giving up meeting, meeting together. This word in Greek essentially talks about a formal kind of a gathering. That is when Christians gather together to do what Christians do. When we gather together to pray, to hear God's word taught, uh, to take communion, to do baptism, uh, to, uh, to do church discipline, everything that the church does, that's the kind of gathering that this is talking about. And so number one, the first characteristic of this churchless gospel says, you stop participating in those kind of church meetings. The second thing I want us to see is that it involves various motivations. It involves various motivations. And this is really an observation from silence. And what I mean by that is it tells us that there were some people 2,000 years ago who were Christians who were giving up 
coming to the gatherings that Christians had, and they had a habit of doing so, but it doesn't say why. And when I look at this text, one of the first questions was, well, why would they stop doing that? I mean, why would a Christian then and today, why would they just stop? I mean, why would they fall for this counterfeit gospel? Why would they stop participating with, in these regular church meetings? And the answers could be a million fold. Back in that day, heavy persecution. You didn't want to lose your life. You stopped going to the church meetings. That's one very you know, realistic uh, reason why they could have stopped, but we don't know. The author doesn't tell us, and I think that's helpful because as you and I know, there are a million different reasons if we wanted to conjure up reasons in our mind why we would do the first thing, and that is stop participating in the life of the church. And so it's stopping. It involves a whole slew of possible motivations. And then number three, it becomes a habit. Notice what he says. He says, not only, not only are they giving up meeting together, but then he says, as some are in the habit of doing. Some are in the habit of doing. And this is really instructive, is it not? I don't know about your church experience or, or, or my church experience, but uh, being a churchgoer myself and then being on staff at several different churches, what I've noticed is that when people start moving away from church and when people start moving away from what exactly this author is saying is the regular gathering of church people, what happens is a couple things. Uh, number one, uh, they uh, tend to drift towards uh, losing their faith. And number two, uh, they stop drawing near to God. That is, they don't do their quiet time, they don't love God, uh, pursue God in a personal way, and so they give up their personal relationship with God. That just is kind, of on, is kind of on the skids. And then ultimately, they might even lose their faith. And I don't know if you have people in mind, I, I can think of a slew of people in my mind uh, that did this, and it began as a habit. That is, they missed a church service here. They missed a small group there. They didn't come to this, and you're you're like, where are they? I don't know. We should call them. But it becomes a habit, and as you know, anything that we do habitually, the more we do it, the easier it is to do, right? And so what the the author here says is that this is what the, the churchless gospel looks like. We stop being involved in the regular gathering of the church for all sorts of reasons, and it be- becomes habitual. And in the greater context, what that means is that we can't spur one another on to, to good works. And very well likely, we may stop pursuing God, and we might even forsake Christ altogether. And so this is the counterfeit gospel in the first century. But what about the 21st century? What might this look like in our day and time? Before we talk about four possible 21st century go- churchless gospels, I want to ask, Are any of those characteristics true in your life? When you look at the three characteristics of the churchless gospel, does that describe you if you're a believer? You're stopping participating in regular gatherings of the church. You're sporadic. It's becoming a habit. And you might have all sorts of motivations for doing it. Does that, do those, describe you? So secondly, the 21st century churchless gospels. I just want to suggest four quick ways, four quick different pictures of what this might look like in our 21st century. Number one, uh, the first uh, churchless gospel that I'll suggest to you is what I'll call the convenience store gospel. The convenience store gospel. Um, Now, I know this doesn't exactly apply uh, to us, and the image will not exactly work, because here in Sisson Park, we have how many convenience stores? One, right? Unless there's one I'm missing, right? <laughs> Unless I'm missing out on something. We have one convenience store, and uh, it's, it's a really good convenience store. Um, where we came from, there was a convenience store 
on every block. You know what I mean? I mean, they were just everywhere. Tons of convenience stores. And this is the thing about convenience stores. Convenience stores, you really only go to a convenience store when you have a need, do you not? Uh, You only go when you have a specific need, and not only that, but you only go when it's convenient for you. I mean, in a city, that's why they're called convenience stores, because they're right there. Now, ours is certainly convenient, because it's right in the middle of town, but where we lived in Dallas, it was convenient to go a block away to get a jug of milk or a carton of eggs, as opposed to going to the grocery store. The point of my illustration is simply this. For a convenience store, you just go when you want to. You know, you, you go when you have a need. And so the convenience store churchless gospel says, we only go to church when it's convenient. We only go to church when we have a need. And so this could look like all sorts of things. I'll just give you some suggestions. And so we only go to church uh, when we feel like it. We wake up and it just feels like a church morning. And so we're going to go. We only go to church when the kids don't have ball games. And so then those are church days. We only go to church when the Bears game is not at noon and Trey speaks overboard, okay? On those days, then we're going to go to church when they play at 3. Um, we only go to church when we're not doing uh, family camping trips. We only go to church uh, if, if there's a family outing or there's a reunion. That takes precedent. Whatever does not interfere, then we go to church. Maybe we go to church because we have a felt need. We go to church, we're really having a bad week. I mean, it's been a crummy week. We better go to church, right? We've got to seek God's face so that next week can be better, right? I really need an emotional pick-me-up, so I'm going to go to church. It's a major holiday, Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving, so we should be in church. The weather is well, it's pretty crummy, and I can't do my chores, so I'm going to go to church. You get the point that I'm making. There are all sorts of ways that the convenience store gospel uh, reveals itself in our lives. And so I'll ask you this. Are you a convenience store Christian? Do you go to church merely when it's convenient for you and when you have a need? That's the convenience store gospel. And the problem with this counterfeit is that it puts us on this slippery slope. It puts us on the slippery slope of not giving up meeting together because when we only go to the church gatherings when it's convenient for us, well then it's very easy for us to stop meeting together and to develop a habit of doing that. So number two, not only is there the convenience store gospel, but there's the PJ gospel, the pajama gospel, if you will. And I should have brought some of Asher's PJs. I forgot, so forgive me. Uh, But there are days, uh, maybe... uh, Uh, when your kids were were little, that they did this. But there are days when Asher wakes up, and he's in his PJs, and he wants to wear his PJs all day long. Uh, Maybe some of you adults, or if you you stay at home or something, maybe you do that too, and that's cool. Nothing wrong with that, you know, wearing your PJs all day long, I suppose. Um, But there are days when Asher, he just wants to wear his PJs, and he wants to do everything in the convenience of his PJs, okay? And so uh, the PJ gospel then by, by, uh, by offshoot essentially says that you can watch a church service on your TV or on your internet, and that is your church. More precisely, the PJ gospel says this. The PJ gospel says that spiritual activities, other spiritual activities, are substitutes for being a part of a church. Doing something spiritual is the same as being in or a part of the church. 
And so this could look like a lot of different things. It could be watching a worship service from your TV. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's your church, then you're really not a part of a church. Listening to a podcast while you're driving to work. Some guys may want to make that their church. Reading your Bible at night, that's your church. Going to a women's Bible study during the week, that's your church. Being involved in a parachurch ministry, maybe like Bible study fellowship. Some people make that their church. Uh, I had a roommate in college, he was a good guy. He was a good Christian. I liked him a lot, and we got along very well. And he, he pursued God. He loved God. But we got involved in a, in a men's fraternity at A&M, and it was a Christian fraternity. Yes, there are such things as Christian fraternities. And I was a part of one for a year. And so uh, we would go to this Christian fraternity, and we'd have our meetings, and we'd have our small groups. And, uh, and so my friend would just be like, hey, I'm like, hey, you want to go to church with me on Sunday morning? We're going to Grace. I went to Grace Bible Church in college. Not this one, <laughs> but I went to Grace Bible Church. I said, hey, you want to go to Grace? You know, I'm going to Grace this morning, and I want to be a part of that. And he's like, no, I went to church already. I'm like, well, you already did? It's like 9 o'clock Sunday morning. Where did you go? He's like, well, I went, to, I went to Bucks. It was called Brothers Under Christ. I went to Bucks, and that was my church. And I was like, well, that's a good thing. That's a spiritual activity, but it's not a church. <laughs> it's not a church. And this is what the PJ Gospel says, mistaking spiritual activities for church attendance. And the problem with this counterfeit is that it, it fails to realize that the church is not just about what we do at church. It's not just about singing, and it's not just about hearing preaching. It's not just about taking an offering, praying, and everything that we do. It's not just about what we do, but the church, from a biblical perspective, is the people. It's the people who commit themselves to be a part of a local congregation. The church is more than just spiritual activities. In the New Testament, a church uh, puts itself under the headship of Jesus Christ, and then there's God Godly qualified leadership in that church. And they do certain things, like they preach the word accurately, and they take communion uh, consistently, and they baptize people. They exercise church discipline. There's accountability, and there's authority. And that's the picture of what the church is. And the PJ gospel fails to realize that by just simply mistaking that doing a spiritual activity is the same as going to church. So we have the convenience store gospel, the PJ gospel, third I couldn't come up with a better name, so forgive me. The Six Degrees of Separation Gospel. How many of you are familiar with the concept of the Six Degrees of Separation? Raise your hand if you are. Okay. A few of you. Uh, It was made popular by a play in the 1990s, and essentially the Six Degrees of Separation, if I understand it correctly, basically says that I... Uh, by way of association, by way of other relationships that I have, essentially uh, can connect myself to, I think, anybody in the world in six relationships. So let's say I wanted to say that I knew Brad Pitt, because he's on the top of my mind right now, for some reason. Brad Pitt. Let's say I I wanted to say that I knew Brad Pitt. Well, this uh, six degree of separation says that if I have a friend who has a a co-worker, who has an associate, who knows somebody from their junior high, who then uh, worked with Brad Pitt on this movie screen, see, the connections by association, then you can get to anybody by six leaps. The whole idea is basically that you then are connected with people, or connected with something, and here's the key point, by association. Okay? You're connected by association. The Six Degrees of Separation Gospel says that we are connected with the church 
we participate, can, can call ourselves as a member or going to this church simply by being associated with it. So I don't know if you've ever talked to people um, who, who have this. Maybe you yourself at one point uh, held to this gospel. I hope you don't now, um, but maybe you did. Um, and so I'll ask them and I'll say, hey, you know, do you go to church somewhere? And they say, oh yeah, I'm Catholic, or oh yeah, I'm Lutheran, or oh yeah, I'm Methodist, or oh yeah, I'm Baptist, or oh yeah, I go to such and such a church. And I'll be like, oh, okay, great. Who's the pastor there? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> They're like, I'm like, when, when did you go last? Well, I was baptized there. I mean, you, you get the picture of, of where I'm going with this, right? It's church by association. And so it looks like a lot of different ways. A person claims to be a part of a church, but they don't go on any kind of regular basis. Uh, maybe they grew up in the church. That's a big one. I grew up as a kid going to this church, so that's my church. That's where I go. But they don't know anything about it, and they're not regularly involved right now. Maybe they visited as a kid. You went to church with a friend, and so that's the church that you associate with. Maybe you went to a Christian school or that denomination, and so you are Catholic, Methodist, name your denomination. In fact, I grew up a lot uh, with this uh, down south. In South Texas, uh, Catholicism is very popular, and it's very heavy, and I had a lot of friends that they would say they were Catholic, and I'm sure they were by association, but they never went to church. They were not actively involved in any kind of church. They had a six degree of separation gospel. Maybe you got married at that church. Maybe your mom and dad went to that church. Maybe you went to the youth group there. You, you see where I'm going with this. It's a, I'm involved in this kind of church merely by association. I'll tell you uh, what I hope is going to be a funny story um, that illustrates this. When I was working in Dallas, I was working at a church that had pretty historical roots. In fact, it was called Northway so by the name of Northway, guess where it was associated in the Dallas Metroplex? Where? North. You guys are genius. Amazing. North, that's right. Well, that is when it was founded. It was founded in 1940-something, and at that point, it was the North Way. It was on the very edge of what was considered Dallas, and so it was far north. Well, guess what happened over 50 or 60 years. It became central Dallas, <laughs> and it was no longer north Dallas, but it was a huge church. I mean, a huge church. In fact, it was probably one of the original mega churches in America. I think uh, I remember hearing back in the 50s or maybe 60s that it was upwards of maybe 15,000 people. I mean, it was a huge church, and we had a huge facility. I mean, just amazing facilities. Long story short, over the years, the church had just dwindled and dwindled and, and dwindled, and by the time I got there, we uh, we were just, we were smaller than 15,000, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but the point is that it was a well-known church, and in that community, everybody knew about Northway. Okay, so segue to this story. I, I was doing youth ministry, and I was driving the church van, and we were, I think we were handing out flyers for our VBS or something. And so we're just going into the neighborhoods, and we were in a neighborhood very close to the church. And, and it was a narrow street, and I thought, okay, well, that's the street we need to go on, and I'm driving this big 15-passenger van, right? So I'm driving this van, and I'm like, narrow street, oh, I think I can make it. And so I turned, and as I'm, you know, kind of careening my way through this narrow street, I come to see ahead of me that there were two cars essentially parked right in the way, and that I could not get through uh, on the road. There was some kind of hindrance. I couldn't, I couldn't do it just on the road. And uh, it was hard, it would be really hard for me to back up, and so... So granted, I was younger then, right, okay? <laughs> a caveat here. I was younger then, but I thought, well, what am I going to do? I don't think I can back up. I certainly can't plow through them. And so the only escape that I thought was uh, there was like a curb, right? And then there was a little patch of grass, and then there was uh, a sidewalk, and then somebody's house. And I thought, you know, I can just hop the curb, 
and, and, and just drive, and literally, it was like a foot. And I was like, just a foot up on the curb, onto the grass, and get, get around. And I thought, that's what we're going to do, you know? And then, I, and then I, I justified it in my mind by saying, you know what, that's not their property anyways. That's state property, you know, right there. And so I was like, ah, no big deal. And, and, and so, so long story short, I, I hop the curb, and I just kind of, you know, do that, and I keep, we, keep, we keep going. And then I get out of the car to hand out these flyers, and this guy's like, hey, what are you doing? And, I, and so you see where this is going, right? And so I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I was, you know, I didn't think that that was your yard. But I, so I told him this whole thing. He was not pleased. Let's just say he was not pleased that I hopped the curb onto his yard, which is really not his yard, but that's beside the point. And uh, he was really unhappy. So he's like, you're, oh, you're, you're at Northway? And I'm like, yeah, I'm the youth pastor at Northway. He's like, I go to Northway. And I, and I thought, I've never seen you in my life, <laughs> and I've been there for five years, <laughs> and, he, he, and he's like, yeah, I'm good friends with the pastor, and I'm going to call him, and, and you're really in trouble, and I'm like, sir, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, here's, you know, and I was like, you, I was like go ahead and call him, I'll talk to him too, and then I was like, well, I was like, what's his name? <laughs> he didn't know, <laughs> he didn't know, because he had never been there probably in 25 years, but he goes to Northway Baptist Church. <laughs> and that is the six degrees of separation gospel. Wrapping up, number four. The convenience store, the PJ, the six degrees. Number four, I call it the perfect church gospel. The perfect church gospel essentially says, I'm not going to be a part of a church unless it, ne- it meets all of my criteria, i.e. unless it's perfect. Uh, this looks like a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Here's a few what it could look like. Uh, number one, I'm not gonna, going to attend this church or that church or any church because it's full of hypocrites. You ever gotten that one before? Church is full of hypocrites. And when I talk with someone, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I am, and are you? <laughs> Do you perfectly live out what you want? No, I'm not. <laughs> it's not about hypocritical or not. It's about does God give us grace and forgive us and transform us so that we're less hypocrites than more hypocrites. So that's number one. There are a bunch of hypocrites, so I'm not going to go to church. Number two, it could look like I'm not going to go to ch- I'm only going to go to this, this church or that church only if it meets all of my preferences, all of my small or large, minute preferences, and only if it agrees with me on every doctrinal issue, every single one. Number three, I'm not going to go to church because I've been hurt by people in the past, and that's certainly real and legitimate. Uh, I've been hurt. There are a ton of people. In fact, I talk to a, a lot of people when I ask them. They have a bitter taste in their mouth because of what has happened to them at church. Some of it's legitimate. Some of it's not legitimate. All of it is unfortunate for sure, but that's uh, something that they say. I've been hurt, and so I'm not going to be involved in any church. To this, the great Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, once said, The church is not perfect. The church is not perfect. But woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. And I think that that's very true. You know, the problem with this counterfeit is that they all have this common criteria that have to be met in order for you to be a part of this church. Number one, uh, the, the criteria is that, well, it's full of hypocrites, so I'm not going to go. There are no churches <laughs> without hypocrites, so that's not an excuse. Number two, uh, there are no churches that will meet all of your preferences. I mean, I have preferences, you have preferences on style and, and song and, uh, and teaching and all sorts of preferences that we have, but I, I, I seriously doubt that there's ever going to be a church that has every single one of your preferences that will be met, and not to mention every single one of your theological uh, conceptions met. I mean, I have what I think about most every passage of the Bible, and I'll tell you what I think, but I don't know if there's any ever church that will say, oh, 
you're absolutely, I, we agree with you on everything that you think about the Bible. That's probably not a good criteria either. Number three, there are no churches where you, are, you will never get hurt. This is the sad truth, but it's true because we are full of people and the church is the people and we are being changed by the grace of God, but we still have this flesh and we still hurt people. And so the problem with the perfect church is that it creates a criteria that just cannot be met by any church that I know of. So we've seen these 21st century churchless gospels and I want to ask you, which one do you identify with? Which one do you fall for? Which one might you be inclined towards? I want to close with the words of Trevin Wax and his book, Counterfeit Gospels. I think this is very helpful to close on. He says, it's good to have an idealistic view of the church. Amen and amen. We should pursue being everything that God wants the church to be. It's good to have an idealistic view of church, but an ideal can do one of two things. Number one, it can prompt us to work hard towards the fulfillment of the ideal, or number two, it can paralyze us to the point that we give up. He concludes by saying, the faults we see in the church should increase our motivation for seeking the ideal. And that's my heart and my prayer for our church and for other churches as well, is that when we see that we are not in line with God's ideal, that it shouldn't paralyze us to inaction or non-participation, but it would engage us and say, how can I make this everything that God's church should be? So, in closing... Do you love the church? Do you love the local church and the universal church? Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. It's his bride. I don't know of any bridegroom who doesn't love his bride. It's his body. I don't know of any head that doesn't appreciate the body. And it's his building. He's the cornerstone. So the real question is, Jesus loves the church. Do we? Father, I do pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word, continue to help us to have insight so that we might view your church rightly and that we might understand the good news of Jesus Christ and how it's related to the church because you don't cause us to be born again through your Holy Spirit uh, by faith in the once uh, living and dead and then resurrected Son of God and we are born into the church, the body of Christ. We are made an arm, we are made an elbow, we are made a head, we are made a part of the bride of Jesus Christ, we are made a brick of which Jesus Christ is the foundation. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian uh, that is not a part of a church. And so, dear God, we pray that that ideal we would pursue here with all of our hearts and all of our minds and that we would heed uh, this warning from Hebrews that is uh, uh, from so many years ago and yet still holds true. Father, I pray that we would consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds and that we would not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But Father, we would encourage one another as we see the day of our Lord Jesus Christ drawing near. Jesus, we ask that you indeed would come. And until then, that we would be faithful in all of these things. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. Lots of things to sign up for. Lots of stuff going on. Check out the Welcome Center. See you next week.